Yo, what's up everybody? My name is Sean and this is my podcast. It's called Yo, What's Up? In this episode, I'm talking with Gerard Middleton, who's the owner and founder of Sobe Surf, a surf school that he started in Miami Beach, Florida, and which is now based in Cocoa Beach. Gerard and I first met in 2008 when he asked me to design a new website for his business. He got a lot of positive comments about that site and it set him out ahead of his competition in some critical ways. Over the years, Gerard and I continued to work together as his business grew and developed. In 2016, I traveled to Cocoa Beach to do some further work for Sobe Surf, and before I left, Gerard and I had the opportunity to sit down together and talk about some of his story. If you're interested in small business development, in surfing, in the beginnings of stand-up paddleboarding as a sport, in encounters with huge sharks, or if you're just a fan of Gerard and what he does, I hope you'll stay tuned. Here we go. Well, it's November 3rd, 2016. I'm here in Merritt Island, Florida at Sobe Surf and Paddle. It's a paddleboard shop in the Cocoa Beach area, and I'm uh, sitting with Gerard Middleton, Gerard, how's it going? Good, Sean. How you doing? I'm well. Uh, tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, my name is Gerard Middleton, and I have a stand-up paddleboard business. My uh, my shop is in Merritt Island, Florida, Cocoa Beach area. And I also have services down in Miami Beach, where I started the company. Yeah, great. Um, what kind of what kind of things do you do here at your paddleboard shop? Well, we. Uh, we're, we're, we do a lot of paddleboard services, uh, like nature tours and, uh, and uh, lessons and, and uh, rentals and such. And also, uh, we have a big shop with a lot of inventory, and uh, you know, we love helping people uh, buy paddleboards and get the right board for them. And, and make, you know, even when people buy, we make sure they're trained up good. And, and uh, so, yeah. Like, I'm looking around your shop right now, and it's kind of a gear garage in here. I mean, it's just a, yeah. an open warehouse in a way. You've got paddle boards stacked up against the walls, and uh, it's it's open and airy and bright, and uh, the breeze is blowing through uh, here in uh, fall in uh, central Florida. It's beautiful weather. A uh, little bit of traffic outside, which uh, you'll probably, as a listener, you'll probably, you know, hear as we talk here, but... Uh, but no, I mean, I mean, you've got it. You've got an interesting place. This isn't like most other uh, paddleboard or surf shops I've seen. This is a different kind of operation. Tell me, tell me about why you why you run your shop this way. Yeah, it's just a, a warehouse shop makes a lot of sense with paddleboards for one thing. There's such big items, you know, and uh, and uh, to have you need a lot of storage area. And uh, also, it's not something you really sell to tourists that fly in and fly out. It's not like they can take a paddleboard with them on the plane. So, you know, it's a lot of a relationship building with locals and, um, and regional people. And, of course, you know, we do ship anywhere in the U.S., but you still need to build that relationship. And, and in my opinion, make sure, you know, the person is, well, you know, getting the right equipment for who they are, where they are, what they're going to be using it for, their skill level, you know, and instead of just trying to sell them something and, and get rich on every board kind of thing. So with that, 
you know, we have a little off the path uh, location, but uh, 1,500 square feet, uh, 18 foot ceilings. Stock a lot of boards. People come in and kick the tires. They're not going to educate them about them. And uh, we have a little private launch about six blocks down the street where we live. And uh, people can demo boards for free. Uh, we do our, like I say, our nature tours there and lessons. And uh, definitely a lifestyle business. Uh, you know, I'm a pro. I've been a pro stand-up surfer and stand-up uh, racer since there have been pro events and and uh you know I've always been good at it and I've been at it from the beginning but my gift is teaching I love teaching people and uh so when you come to this shop you're gonna 90% of the time be talking to me the owner the pro I'm gonna be the one helping you and caring for you and and really helping you get the right board or boards for you or your family or your sport uh and within the budget you need and uh and I'm going to train you. You know, I offer free lessons with, with board sales. And, and I always keep up with my clients. And a lot of them become really good friends and buy a lot of boards over time. So uh, the other big thing with a shop like this, I don't have the massive overhead that, that the shops that have the, the great uh, location, you know, on the A1A or on the main drags are paying. Fancy displays. Yeah, and fancy displays, all of this, you know, they stock a lot of extra little stuff. I'm core. I have power. Every type of paddleboard you could want, uh, paddles, uh, leashes, life vest, uh, a lot of just core items that I think are really necessary. Yeah, the and basics. The, yeah, the fluff I don't carry. Yeah. I don't do it. And um, you know, my racks are hand homemade. You know, and um, you know, very Hawaiian vibe, uh, Aloha spirit. I, I do have a ukulele rack in here. I don't care if I sell them or not. I just like them in the shop. You know, I like the vibe, and and uh, we got. A place to sit where people can hang out, talk story, or watch watch uh, videos and have a coffee going, uh, play the guitar or the ukulele. So yeah, really a lifestyle business, and um, that's that's kind of you know my, my dream come true. And uh, I work hard at it, but uh, at the same time I can I can close the doors and go for errands and put a sign out saying call for service, you know, and I don't have to have a bunch of employees and, and, uh, have to sell so many boards, have that kind of pressure just to pay the bills every month. Right. So, I mean, uh, life is life. I mean, if you have huge overhead, then I don't care who you are. You're going to feel the pressure to move boards, even though it may not be the right thing for the customer. Yeah. Interesting. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, you've had uh, quite a journey up to this point in your life. Uh, you, You've, uh, you've you you started uh, not just small, but you started very small, and I would even say started guerrilla style. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and really, when the this the sport was uh, just 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 emerging, you know, just coming into just becoming a thing, uh, you were you were there at the very beginning almost, and um, and I I think that's some history that I want to go into in the course of our conversation here today. Um, but um, but also let's kind of roll back the roll back the clock a little earlier than that and um, tell me like what your background is um, where did you grow up um, just briefly you know uh, what part of the United States did you grow up in uh, what were you interested in as a youngster um, did you go to school and what did you study in school 
Yeah, uh, you know, Sean, I feel like I've lived a lot of different lifetimes already. And uh, so I'll try to start at the beginning and make a quick journey, a quick uh, walk through them all. And so, um, yeah, I'll, uh, so I was born in Miami and let uh, the truck pass. It's going by outside. I was born in Miami, Florida, and my parents had just moved there uh, as, and working as ministers in a church. Uh, and uh, and they had adopted me at birth, just within a few days of my birth, uh, I was adopted. And just uh, when I was a couple years old, they moved to Sarasota. I was there till I was six, and then uh, moved to Lakeland, where I where I grew up pretty much. And that's the middle of the state. Uh, you know, good people there, but uh, we. If you're a kid, you hate it. If you're an adult, you're like, oh, it's a great place to raise my kid. <laughs> There's nothing to do. And uh, so <clears throat> we unaffectionately called it Lame Land instead of Lake Land, but no offense, Lakeland. But um, so uh, that was it. So my parents being in the ministry, uh, ministry kids, we had to be at church like four days a week. You know, it was, I kind of re- did build up resentment to that, to that after a while. But um so I wasn't able to play uh, the Little League and all the sports that I wanted to. I was an athletic kid and uh, not able to uh, exercise my athleticism or get trained or anything. Uh, so I, I uh, started weightlifting and bodybuilding and that kind of thing, staying in shape, and just just uh, chiseling my body the best I could. And then uh, I, my dad, uh, you know, we became great friends, and he was a great hunter and fisherman. So... Hunting and fishing and becoming a woodsman and a waterman was my thing. And I was able to do that without having to go to practice on church nights and stuff, you know. Right. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, what kind of hunting did you do? What times of the year? Yeah, we uh, we would go, uh, you know, all kinds of hunting, uh, bird hunting, uh, doves and, and ducks, and a lot of good stories there. And I'm, I know it offends a lot of people these days, but, um, you know, it's a culture you grow up in, and I'm proud of it. And uh, you develop your skills, you develop your your senses, get heightened senses, senses that a large part of the of human beings don't use anymore because they don't need them. Uh, they go to the grocery store and buy a, a meat that's already been killed for them, you know, and cleaned and butchered and, and cured and or buy vegetables that have already been grown for them, you know. And so I appreciate that heritage, uh, learning to hone my, my hunting skills and yeah. senses in the woods smell here uh you know the stalking well i'll tell you awareness uh, i'll tell you a little story <laughs> um i was i was visiting i i'd come down for the surf expo and i was hanging out at your place a, a few years back it yeah. was it was when uh candace appleby and anthony uh vela were there and uh i think we we're we we're at your place one night and it was it was you'd made some something for dinner and yeah. you offered me some and you were like, and I was like, what is it? And you're like, Oh, it's, it's pig. And I was like, where did you get it? And you were like right between the eyes or something like that. <laughs> in the ear, <laughs> in the ear. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, interesting. Like this guy's got something going on. So yeah. Um, but, yeah. uh, I think it's, I think it's pretty impressive to, uh, you know, be able to, uh, either hunt or forage or, or, uh, rely on yourself for, your sustenance in that way. And I, I think yeah. learning that at an early age um, is something that um, just not only builds a very practical life skill, but 
um, but develops character as well, would you say? Absolutely. And the key is getting the right training. You know, if you're, you see on TV the guy that's out drinking and rolling, you know, around the back of the truck, just shooting everything that moves, that's not the way it is at all. I'm sure that may happen in some places. But for the most part, it's, it's uh, great life training. And, res- and being a hunter, uh, you learn absolute respect for nature. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you learn nature how to- doesn't forgive. It doesn't give you a second chance sometimes. And people f- don't seem to realize nature is more cruel to itself than humans are to other <laughs> parts of nature. I mean, you forget the law of the jungle, you know, and it exists. I mean, just... Uh, animals are absolutely cruel to other animals, and it's all about survival. And uh, so, as humans, we we rise above that our animal side. We all have it, but where we are different is we can rise above it and uh, and become more than just animal. And um, you know, spiritual side has a lot to do with that, and love and and respect, and you know, and. Uh, and managing other animals that don't have that awareness and that ability. So, yeah, appreciate my hunting background. I was always good at it, by the way. I was exceptional, a highly skilled woodsman and fisherman, too. You know, you've got a gun collection, and, you know, I I don't know, maybe I'll cut that out. But, um, (laughs) no, but I mean, like, you can tell, like, that's that's been a big part of your life. And uh, like you said earlier, you know, you feel like you've lived several lifetimes. And, um, you know, I can tell that, you know, you just haven't been on this narrow path of what you're doing right now for your whole life, but you've uh, walked a few different paths through life and, switch, you know, not, not necessarily switched tracks, but broadened your scope of experience uh, impressively along the way. So as you uh, grew up and uh, moved into adulthood from Lakeland, where did, where did you go from there? All right. Well, I've always wanted to surf, you know, as a kid. And I'd watch it on TV and I'd be like, wow, that's for me, you know. And, uh, but you're two hours inland, yeah? Right, right. And, uh, but when I was a junior in high school. My parents started letting me go on weekends to Cocoa Beach and surf and learn to surf. And I did that. And I remember learning the hard way. There were no schools back then. So uh, I got a board. I didn't even know it was the right size board for me, and uh, got out there and almost drowned. And but I, I wanted to do it so bad, I kept kept at it. You're persistent, right? And uh, so I wish I'd have had a lesson like what we teach people yeah. how to surf today. With uh, but anyway, that's another story. But so with that, so I ended, wound up going to college and uh, Palm Beach Atlantic College and picking up a new surfboard on the way down, mm-hmm. and. Uh, mm-hmm. Was there for a couple of years. Never really knew what I, what direction I wanted to go in life. So I took, you know, uh, what was it uh, biology? Thinking I'd be a vet. Loved animals. And then switched to geology because it just made sense. And mm-hmm. then uh, ended up transferring to University of South Florida, uh, the Bulls, and um, got a geology degree there. And the coolest thing about that was the field camp. We would. Uh, to graduate, you had to get a Bachelor of Silent Science rather than Bachelor of Arts. You had to go to, to a six-week field camp mm-hmm. in uh, New Mexico, based in New Mexico. So we went to Taos, New Mexico in the summer and rented an old uh, you know, uh, ski lodge out. And it's like 26 of us, a few professors. And it was just nonstop hard work. It was like you're 
either running up and down a mountain, mapping different things, taking measurements. Uh, uh, no, I thought you were going to say it was nonstop know. partying. No, no. <laughs> it I mean, sounds it was, intense, though. Well, some of that, but it was uh, <laughs> really just, I mean, I think we had three days off in, in six weeks, literally. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just, and when you weren't in the field, you had to be back working on your uh, your reports and maps and yeah. cross sections and all that. And, mm-hmm. But on that trip, we went to, uh, you know, the Grand Canyon and uh, Monument Valley, just beyond words. I just I didn't realize it was so magnificent, you know, three three levels of of, of land. You know, I remember standing. We went up on one of the mountains, and you look down on the plains. And in the plains, there was uh, the the arroyos or the rivers go down another thousands of feet. Yeah. And uh, seeing a thunderstorm go beneath us, lightning storm, and it started a, a forest fire oh, wow. on the plains beneath us. Wow. And their truck came up where we were looking for volunteers to go fight the fire. Hmm. Just one of those memories. And uh, but I I want to go back out west. I I just you know I just can't believe how. You can't capture it on any camera. It's I lived out there for several amazing. years, and it's, um, you know, there's something definitely, like, romantic about living in a town with 500 people, and, you know, and yeah. you just you feel like you're way out there on the edge, edge of civilization. But, yeah. uh, you know, there's also something really uh, it never seemed to get old for me about taking a drive an hour down the road, and in the course of that yeah. hour drive you drive through like 80 million years of geology. Just amazing. Yeah. yeah. And so, so we did that. I've never actually got a job in geology. So, mm-hmm. well, what did you do after you, after you uh, graduated from college? Well, I came back to Lakeland and actually worked in uh, like a corporate real estate um, in a friend's office and uh, did that for a year or two. And, and, uh, Really got into the the church there and started leading the youth choir and and uh, all of that and and knew I didn't want to do geology I didn't want to do real estate um, and some friends of mine had come back from visiting the Bahamas uh, the Abacos the outer islands and they'd vacationed out there he's actually still my best friend he's a fishing guide here in Cocoa Beach now oh, wow. but this is way back uh, 1990 I think and. Um, they came back and on this little island with 240 people had a little Christian school and they were looking and I don't know I thought they said they were looking for a teacher I wasn't sure what they wanted but uh, I said heck yeah I'll put in my resume so sent my resume went all summer didn't hear anything back from them and I uh, got back from a trip I did with the youth choir up to Pennsylvania mm-hmm. remember that and the the phone rang and it was these people from the Bahamas saying, hey, we'd like to fly you out here and uh, interview you for this job at the school. Hmm. So flew out. I'm like, heck, yeah. You know, this is Outer Island, so there's waves and fishing and spear fishing and mm. everything. And mm. so I'm like, yeah. yeah. So I go out there, and uh, it's it's this little school they want me to be the principal of, actually. The schoolmaster. Yeah. Not just a teacher. Yeah, I was like 26, and I was like, wow, really? Wow, me? interesting. And I was like, yeah, you. So... Uh, it was like 36 kids, uh, all ages, and I ended up teaching the top four grades, you know, 10th, 11th, you know, whether 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th. In addition to being the principal of the school. Right. And yeah. then uh, we'd open up every morning. I'd play guitar. We'd sing some worship songs. And then they divide up six different teachers, you know, mm. and, and with a few grades apiece. Oh, wow. And it was just an amazing experience. And, Sounds um, like a little country school. and 
Yeah, well, on the island, crystal clear water, you know, yeah. giant lobster. We go out and get. Uh, what were the views like there? Like, what do you, what do you, when you think of uh, pictures in your mind uh, from there, what do you, what do you imagine? Where does your mind go? Well, it's it was just so peaceful and non-populated. Yeah, and quiet and as anything. Huh? Quiet. Except they had motorcycles on the island. Oh, so you're constantly that <laughs> engine noise all the not time. Not constantly, but yeah. sometimes at night, you yeah. know, the kids will go by. and you know, They're not supposed to be doing that. But um, but mostly quiet and the long, white, sandy beach. Uh, the crystal clear water, the great fishing, the great surfing. There was an island um, called Hopetown that was, I was on Manowar Key, or it's spelled C-A-Y, but pronounced Key, and, uh, you know, the Brits pronounce it that way. And it's like uh, about five or six miles across this open water to uh, the La Hope Town, which was the surfing. They had an inner reef. Uh, There's a reef called Garbanzo's, a place, uh, White Sound. And uh, I, I had the use of a little Boston whaler. So I put a mango in there after school and uh, put uh, my surfboard. And I'd go putt across this big open water. And uh, when the waves were up and I go out, I'd surf you know, till dark, by myself usually, and uh, sometimes one other person. It's got kind of scary sometimes. Yeah. Wow. And then come back, and uh, just learning to make that crossing and not hit rocks and such uh, was an adventure. Uh, you know, I, I know there was a lighthouse, but I, a few times the light was, one time the light was burned out, so I didn't have the light to go by to come back, so... Like just really being super careful because there were rocks along the way, just you know, up out of nowhere. And you can see in the Hope Town had this big lighthouse. Now where I was going to Manowar, there's this little bitty lighthouse at the entrance. Uh, that's the one that was out one time. But this big lighthouse from Hope Town was sweeping and just a surreal environment, big water. Uh, and I've, I'm eating this mango and. Because I'm so hungry, and it gets all you know. By the time I get back, it's all over my face because it's choppy and all that. But pretty neat uh, adventures, you know, by myself. Yeah. The heart. I loved it there. I wanted to stay, but the hardest part was just being single there. I mean, there were really no, you know, the girls would be married by the time they're 16, pretty much. So, uh, I, just a, a bit lonely, yeah. to be honest with you. Yeah, so you came back. Yeah, and uh, well, the school closed. We were sh- we were boating in half our students from the mainland, which is Marsh Harbor, and they opened up their own private school that next year. So our school uh, couldn't keep the doors open. So, but I wound up going back every year for many years for vacation. Just really stayed in touch with the locals or like family. Yeah, sound like you it it had an effect on you for sure. Yeah, and I made great relationships, and uh, was you know it's lifelong relationships and uh so before one good you know we're talking shark stories you know and i've got some more to tell and a lot of big shark stories out there like the first year i went there two people died of shark attack while i was there that year uh one was a tourist who was spearfishing and carrying his bag full of fish next to him which was asking to be eaten out there and then the uh, the other one was one of the local boys. They were uh, they call it crawfishing. That's what they call the lobster. And uh, they were out in a little boat uh, shooting lobster. You can you can shoot them there with a with a Hawaiian sling. You can't use a power spear gun, but you can use a uh, oh, like it manual was, it one. Was yeah, legal to use a, yeah, a sling yeah. spear. So yeah. I guess he had his bag of lobster and was getting his boat, and a shark 
bit his leg and hit that uh, the artery. That artery. Yeah. And he bled out before he got to shore. Shoot. Get in. Yeah. So that was the year I was there. Wow. And so all those stories, you know, I have a lot of shark encounters in my time and my visits. Yeah. Well, there. you you did a bit of spear fishing. You probably collected your own food while you were out there, just like you did yeah. when you were a youngster, right? Yeah, like a lot of fishing. Your 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 hunting experience as a younger kid probably right. well, it's prompted like you to just go find Spear fishing is like underwater hunting. It's yeah. it's you know really gets your heart going. You have to use a lot of skills. I mean, even stuff people don't realize, like you have to slow your heartbeat down. You have to, because fish can feel the you know your vibes through the water. Literally, you know, you're if you're nervous, they can they can get that. That it transfers easily through that well, pulses out water. Or, yeah, yeah. no. Nah. So to to wear the right color, to breathe slow, or you know, not breathe underwater, obviously, but uh, slow your heart beat, beat to get calm, and be to be able to stall close enough to get a good shot, and uh, and to get them out of the water quick, so we don't have a shark come visit you, and uh, see a lot of great stories there. Yeah. Well, did you ever did you ever have a shark come visit you? Yeah, several times. Yeah. So tell me, tell <laughs> so. me about, tell me about a. A shark encounter that you had out, out in the Bahamas. You have to get the the picture of the Abacos is the most the further the outer islands, the furthest out northeast chain of. There's seven thousand islands in the Bahamas. You know Nassau. Everybody knows that's just one chain in the middle. It's the most populated chain. The rest of them are are not very populated. And the Abacos is where a lot of the loyalists were uh, banished to during the Revolutionary War. Um, got kicked out, and they settled this area. And there had been Indians living there in the past, but when they settled it, there were no Indians there. Mm-hmm. So it's main, mainly English, uh, Anglo people. They never had slavery there. One of the few places in the Caribbean that there never has been slavery oh, was wow. the Abacos. So uh, definitely I heard from so many travelers from throughout the Caribbean, they come there and go, wow, it's such a different vibe here. There's not that underlying resentment when you yeah. turn your back kind of thing yeah yeah the burden of history right yeah. the burden of history and uh so it was just a beautiful pure place in a lot of ways very conservative very christian and um um you know just like three last names for every thousand people uh-huh. you know kind yeah, of thing. yeah one of those kinds of places right, right. Yeah. so um and the Albury uh, boat builders are famous that are from man of war so the Albury brothers are still there you know building boats by hand so um yeah, shark stories. It's it's out there on the edge, and there's this. Most of the Abacos have this. Uh, the Outer Islands have an outer reef, except for uh, except for uh, Elbow Key, which is where people surf because of that. But Man of War had an outer reef about a quarter mile out, and then once you go out from that reef, it goes down to 300, 400, then boom, the wall down to like a mile deep, or I don't know if it's a mile, but thousands yeah. of feet deep. It's just big ocean, you know, until you get to Africa, you know. So it's a different world, you know, big monsters out there. And um, I uh, a lot of spearfishing shark encounters, but I want to tell you a fishing shark encounter that's pretty amazing. Um, my good buddy uh, was uh, who basically got me that job. Uh, he's his uh, in-law is Adrian Rogers. He's a real famous Baptist preacher. He's passed away now, but amazing man, just big, deep voice, great preacher, you know, big church in Memphis. Yeah, personality. If, yeah. if you're Baptist, then you know who he is because he was like the Pope, you know, <laughs> the Pope of Baptist, whatever. Right. A great, authentic, absolute greatness of a man, yeah. super humble, super powerful, just loving, 
Yeah, great family, man. So anyway, they came out for vacation, and I stayed and acted as kind of a guide for them. And uh, I'd taken him and his son Steve out on a uh, about a 20-foot Alberry boat. They called him a runabout, one engine. And we'd gone way offshore, and we're trolling, and Adrian uh, hooked up on a big tuna, a giant tuna. And, uh, it, it, you know, this is before digital cameras, so I had... I actually only had one of those little uh, store-bought... Like a disposable Disposable camera, camera, exactly. Yeah, I remember. (laughs) So uh, I was taking photos of him fighting this giant fish, and I ran out of film. Uh And then, uh, you know, he's fighting it, fighting it, and I... How long was the fight? I mean, uh, He's probably like at least 45 minutes or so, and I'm Uh thinking, you know what? Um, I said, Mr. Mr. Adrian, we're going to start attracting sharks if we don't get this fish in. So I grabbed his, I asked for his rod, I tightened the drag down, and he said, boy, you lose this fish, I'm going to wear you out. <laughs> He's joking, but, you know, it was, he said that in a loving, joking way. But uh, anyway, so I tightened the drag, and he started fighting. And sure enough, shortly after, uh, the fish stopped fighting. I was like, oh, hand me your rod, hand me your rod. So I started reeling it in. What was left of the tuna, just his head basically, came to the surface, and I reeled it in real fast because this giant shark was following it in all the way to the boat. And um, I pulled it in, and this giant, I think it was a tiger shark, uh, bigger than the boat. You pulled in what was left of the tuna. Yeah. Pulled the tuna head in the boat. Yeah. This shark had, had bitten this, like, 300-pound tuna off right behind the gills one bite. Boom. All that was left was the head and the meat on the top of the head in front of the gills. And the shark itself came all the way up to the boat and was just hanging out with us. I mean, gin clear water, thousands of feet deep. Yeah. You're and just looking down at this. The giant tiger shark. I mean, the boat was 20 feet, and the shark was at least as big as the boat, if not bigger. And I know that because it came beside the boat and stayed there. Its dorsal fin was taller than me. The uh, And Steve's son took the gaff and was hitting it in the back with the butt end of the gaff, and it was not intimidated. Yeah. And we're like, okay, I can't believe I didn't have film. Yeah, right. And uh, so I started the boat. Oh, well, I didn't, the boat had never been turned off. That's a number one rule you don't do in the middle of the ocean. But uh, so I got it back up to trolling speed, like five to seven knots. And that shark pulled in within inches of the prop. And I remember hearing old fishing stories of sharks attacking the prop. And we only have one engine. We're miles out to sea. We'd, we'd have been long gone. So uh, immediately I, I jammed it and I got up on a plane and got away from them. So pretty pretty amazing story yeah that's quite an encounter in the end of the story we brought the fish head in of that tuna and it was such a big tuna we cleaned i cleaned the, the meat out of the top of the head and it fell 12 adults that night with leftovers you still had dinner giant tuna yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. another thing we found coming in from fishing there was a giant uh squid carcass that had been coughed up by a sperm whale really uh, yeah i do have photos of that and uh, just a Oh, the eye was as big as like a softball, put it that way. And we had like half the squid, like eight feet of tentacles. And uh, it was just floating out there. And we picked it up, pulled it in, took photos, and threw it in. Yeah, so big water, another world out there. So, Wow. Yeah, what, what, uh, what, what other things have you run into out there? Well, uh, you probably, I mean, several times we've been spearfishing and had reef sharks kind of bow up at us. That's when you know they're getting getting yeah. uh, territorial yeah but that wasn't really the scary times um like uh i'd say 
one of the scariest ones. Mm-hmm. Well, there's two of two out of the three major shark uh, incidents I've had have been there. Yeah. Uh, and um, one, I had a, fa- a good friend of mine that we just visited them in the mountains, Don Winters and his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all vacationed there together, and I was their guide. And him and his son, two daughters, and his wife. And we had anchored just on the inside of the outer reef. So, and then we'd snorkel out and be spearfishing fish and bring them back right to the on boat. The, on the ledge. On the ledge. Yeah. And big, the big ocean is not far out from that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, uh, I remember I shot a grouper and I brought it up and I th- put it up on the boat and it fell off the side of the boat and it was, still had some life in it. It swam straight under the boat about 15 feet deep yeah. and hid under the rocks. Mm-hmm. I was like, man, doggone it, lost that fish. So, um, and that's putting blood out, obviously. So I went and got everybody, and uh, everybody got back in the boat. And uh, Don, his son, Daniel, and I were still in the water. And a six-foot nurse shark had come in and started trying to get that fish out from under the rocks directly on the boat. I instructed everybody, you know, a shark comes up to you. If you have a spear, then keep the spear between the shark. If you have fins, and we're using long fins, uh, you don't have a spear, then keep your fin between you and the shark mm-hmm. and turn them. Yeah. So the shark came right up to Daniel, and, and he did what I asked him to. He put his, he didn't have a spear, so he put his fin out there, and the shark turned and went back down. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, if this nurse shark came in, I wonder if anything else has is coming in. It's out there, yeah. And Daniel had gotten in the boat, and just his father and I were still in the water. I looked at the channel inside of the reef, between the outer reef and the inner reef, and I saw a giant, gigantic shark. Uh, he wasn't coming at me, thank goodness, but it sent it literally sent chills down my spine. And uh, I yelled to Don, I was like, "Get in the boat! Get in the boat!" I mean, yelled top of my lungs. And he ran, and he got in the boat, and in the process, he dropped his his my spear. He dropped your spear. My spear, and I'm on a really tight budget. Okay, yeah. and and so uh, this is like a twenty five thirty dollars spear for my Hawaiian sling. And I'm thinking, well, okay, shark spear, spear, shark spear, shark spear. So and you're I, I second thoughts about this spear. Yeah, and uh, I went ahead and dove down and and got the spear, and <laughs> came right back up and jumped in the boat. And uh, I said, Don, did you see that shark? And he goes, he said, yeah, I saw it. And I said, word for word, I said, Don, what's your most conservative estimate at how long that shark is? And he said, 18 feet. And I said, yep, I'm thinking the same thing. That was at least an 18-foot long shark we just saw about 30 feet from us. Wow, and it you know that it sounds uh, it sends chills just thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, what was so, that uh, thing swimming like? Was it just it real was swimming slow right or? to left, but you had to be coming in for that blood. So I don't know if it ever turned towards us or not. I didn't stick around to find out. Yeah. Um, it had this big aura of other fish around it. It had its own posse, basically. Wow, just uh, hundreds of fish surrounding it as it glided like a big atomic submarine through the water. Just amazing. So it was either a great white or a tiger. The tigers get really big out there, so it made them in that. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so yeah, there was another boat in the area. We went straight to the other boat, and I said, there's a giant shark out here. You know, be careful. And we got blood in the water, so it kind of yeah. warned them off. Yeah. So another one, uh, uh, and this shark experience is like the only time in my life reality went in slow motion. You hear about that? 
well, this happened. It was so scary to me. Wow. Yeah, and um, later in life, uh, like, I, like I say, it was another lifetime. After after the Abacos, I went to uh, went to Lakeland for a little bit, and that's another story. Uh, a crossroads I took there. Mm-hmm. You know, I ended up going to seminary in New Orleans for two and a half years, mm-hmm. and um, after that, coming down to the University of Miami to work as a chaplain. Mm-hmm. And while I was a chaplain, I kind of evolved into being the uh, chaplain of the football team during the Butch Davis years, and then uh, the baseball team chaplain as well. Three championship teams I was chaplain of, and uh, my my closest guys on the football team was the offensive linemen because they're all fishermen and, and hunters, and uh, mm-hmm. we'd go to the keys together. These guys are all three times my size, by the way, but mm-hmm. uh, but they love me. I love them, and. Uh, uh, so the center, the long snapper, uh, Pat Del Vecchio at that time, and we're still best friends. He's an optometrist now in, uh, in Miami. But yeah. we, uh, we did a trip out to the Abacos together to fish and, you know, and spearfish and fish. And uh, he's an incredible, one of the best, uh, you know, free divers uh, and spear fishermen I, I know of. Mm. And, um, mm. So we're going out together. And uh, we take, we're, again, we're in like the 20-foot runabout. Mm-hmm. And we're in the, the inside where it's uh, in a reef where there's like 30-foot uh, reef heads coming up and then, you know, almost to the surface. And then uh, the sand bottom is, like I said, about 30 feet deep. Mm. So the nice fish, the hog snapper, the grouper, everything are, are down around the bottom. Yeah. So you've got to – we would anchor, go to the different heads, and we had a system. One at a time uh, would go down while the other one watched from up top for sharks. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if you spear something there, uh, whether it's barracudas or sharks, you want to get it out of the water as soon as possible. And if you can hit it in that, that sweet spot right behind the eyes where it just makes them freeze. Otherwise, the, the fish flip around and stuff. Well, we had, uh, we had one, one uh, fish pull off the spear and hide under the reef. And then, so we picked up and moved to another spot about maybe 60 feet away, re-anchored, uh, both of us were in the water snorkeling with our Hawaiian slings. And I went down first while Pat watched. And I got down to the bottom and I hear Pat going, mm, dink, dink, you know, and uh, I looked up and he's making the shark sign, you know, the, the fin on top of his head, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy Buffett fin sign. And, <laughs> and he pointed. I looked down and, and there was a giant uh, bull shark, not like the tiger shark big, but still yeah. at least... 12 to 14 feet and a bull sharks are huge when they're that big they're just so big around they're just fat weigh tons yeah and they're you know you don't mess with bull sharks so he was coming in looking for food and he was all teeth and i just drifted up i know from experience you don't turn your back on a shark you just don't do it Mm -hmm. and uh and so and you don't make fast movements so I just floated up the 30 feet to the top uh, fate while I was still facing the shark with my spear out. Yeah. And as I reached the top, the shark turned and started coming at me. And I looked, and Pat was already in the boat. <laughs> He's smart. <laughs> so I turned around, and this shark was coming for me. And everything went in slow motion. Reality just went, just super slow mo. Wow! And uh, like, I'm just trying to imagine what you're imagining right now. Like just yeah. the blue water all around you, the light coming through, and then you're looking down toward the sandy bottom, 
and this shark is coming up. Giant shark coming after blood, turning and coming for me. Wow. And, uh... Yeah, I've never experienced that before or since. Or just that reality slow motion, down. Yeah. slow motion. And the only, uh, you know, you never know what you're going to do until you're in that kind of crisis situation. I've been in a lot in my life, and uh, you never know if you're going to run, hide, uh, freak out. Panic, uh, yeah. You know, and uh, so I could have bolted for the boat. I would have probably gotten bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of things I could have done, but all I could do is tell myself, you you got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. That that phrase kept repeating in my mind, self-talking. You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. Basically, don't freak out. Mm-hmm. Keep your spear in front of you between you and this massive shark, mm-hmm. and don't freak out. Just be still mm-hmm. and uh, stay under control. Mm-hmm. So uh, he sure enough, he came all the way up to the tip of my spear and turned. I can't remember if I if I hit him with the spear or if he just came to it and turned uh that's foggy but the rest is not yeah and when he turned and his tail got towards me that's when i bolted for the boat which is only like 10 to 15 feet away yeah but uh if i'm bolting kicking my feet while he's coming at me he's gonna grab my legs that's that's a given Uh you know so that was a uh pretty cool memory there what nerve to (laughs) just keep yourself under control yeah, I may have, I'd like to take credit for it, but you never know what you're going to do until you're put in that situation. Yeah. So I, I don't know what it attributes to it. Yeah. Uh, maybe my dad's training me, you know, he's the man's man, you know, and, and everything under control all the time. And mm-hmm. even in, uh, well, that just reminded me of another story I got I to tell you about hog hunting. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was, life was in danger. Really? So bow yeah. hunting for hogs, yeah. But, um, yeah, well, thank, thank the Lord I was stayed under control. Though yeah, I was, it took a lot. Of, you kept yourself together. Yeah, barely. Yeah, barely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. um, do you want to do you want to tell that hog hunting story now, or do you want to come back to it later? Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you the hog hunting story. Yeah. So we were hunting in this uh, flooded ranch in South Florida, mm-hmm. and um, I've always been lucky or good. I don't know, but when we go hunting, I'm always the one that. That uh, it's like the game just come to me, you know. And mm-hmm. it's the same on this trip. I was there with like <laughs> three or four buddies, and I was the one. I'd shot up all my arrows. <laughs> I used up, you know, all my arrows, and uh, and uh, bagged a lot of game. And and so I had to actually go buy new arrows, and uh, I had these graphite arrows I'd never used before, which wasn't wise in the middle of a hunt. But uh, mm-hmm. so I'm 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 sitting, and uh, and I hear because it's a flooded ranch, you can hear the game coming to you. It's one of the only situations that you can actually stalk a game because you can walk through the water and not make noise, but the game can't. It, it still does bloop, 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 bloop. Huh. You can hear it walking. Interesting. So other than that, it's really hard to stalk up on game. Their senses are just too heightened. Mm-hmm. So I hear these pigs, and I'm slowly stalking to them. Now behind me uh, is, is a fence line, and the fence line is the only high uh, row of land on this flooded ranch. So it's just crowded with growth because it's out of the water. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of shrubs and, and small trees and and just, just, you know, this row of like 20 feet of thick. Tangled vegetation. Thicket, right. Yeah. On this barbed wire fence line. Mm-hmm. So uh, I these hogs come out and I take aim at the biggest one 
and uh, uh, I shoot, and the arrow drifts back a little bit, or she moved, and it and it and it got her, uh, you know, like a liver shot, which isn't the best. You want to go heart or neck, mm-hmm. and if you have a gun, you want to go head. But uh, so she ran, and I uh, went under that fence, and so I'm like, okay. So I put another arrow on. I only had two arrows left, mm-hmm. and uh, I. Uh, went up to the fence and I could see her laying down on the other side of this fence in this little cleared out area uh, of this thicket. Now, it was still thicket all around it, but maybe a, a 15 foot area where you could get through the fence and stand up. Mm-hmm. And so I laid my bow down. I, I made my way through the barbed wire fence, picked the bow back up. And when I did that, the hog stood up. It was like a 200 pound hog and was wounded mm. and uh, facing me and making these blood-curdling growls, just shaking the earth. And I'm shaking shaking in my boots. And I have what's called an overdraw on my bow, so it's really easy for the arrow to fall off the overdraw. And I have a trigger release. So it's not like you grab an arrow between your fingers, put it on your other finger, and you know. So I've got two arrows left, trigger release. I grab this arrow, and I'm praying the whole time, by the way. God help me, God help me, God help me. And uh, I put it on the, the, uh, the overdraft draw, pull it back, and misfire. I mean, the arrow comes off. The, the, the bowstring dry fires, which is dangerous. It can break your bow. And I'm like, I can't believe this is happening. You know, God help me. So I reach down, pick up the arrow, put it back on, pull back. And it's still, this, this big hog's just facing me growling and I shoot and the first arrow glances off his face and into the woods at this point he's super pissed and uh, starts coming towards me I get my last arrow out put it on as he's coming at me within 10 feet I shoot and it sticks straight in the middle of his snout makes this big bone chipping noise and uh Nowhere near a kill shot. Had nothing to do with killing the thing. But this arrow is sticking out of his nose. And uh, it distracts him. So he goes trying to get this arrow out of his nose. Goes through the brush and is just swinging it around through the palmettos and trees trying to get it out. That gives me time to get back through the barbed wire fence to the other side and run. and Which I do. And I could hear it just thrash around and growling and growling and growling. And eventually just laying down and, and dying. From the other arrow, you know. So Gnarly. Uh, that Whoa. is a true story. And I have a photo of that pig with the arrow sticking out of its snout uh, in one of my photo boxes, still mm. before digital mm. cameras. But, yeah, uh, yeah. That, was, that was a gut check. Wild. Oh, yeah. My buddies came to pick me up, and they saw the hog with the arrow. They just laughed. They yeah, had the I'm biggest sure. laugh. So, I mean, it's uh, almost comical if it wasn't. If it wasn't life-threatening, really. Yeah. So uh, that was a good story. Good memory. <laughs> Without any embellishment, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you, you, you mentioned you uh, went to Lakeland, and then you got involved with the University of Miami with the football team and the baseball team there. Right, right. Uh, little, little turns in the road in life. Yeah. You know, so I go home from the Bahamas. And uh, one of my best friends, still one of my best friends, since we were like, I was six and he was four mm-hmm. in Lakeland. Uh, 
he just started his own real estate business, and uh, his dad had been a real successful landowner, realtor, and they'd had this uh, parting of ways. And so Rob, he was on his own. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was on his own and uh, just married a baby on the way, first baby on the way. And I still had my real estate license. He goes, yeah, come work with me. I got, I just started my first, uh, he borrowed money from the bank and got a, what do you call a flag lot and selling it for mobile homes and yeah. financing and, mm-hmm. you know, just really basic, you know, no money to start with, just a good name mm-hmm. and very, very, very smart mm-hmm. and a great, great man of faith and great mm-hmm. family man. So I was sitting in there, we're shooting paper wads at each other in this little office and uh, I sold a couple of lots and getting restless. I was living at home and that that was an uncomfortable. Yeah. Love my parents but they they didn't, yeah. you know, my mom didn't love me being at home. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so no. making life a little hard on me. Sure. Getting yeah. me back out of the yeah, nest. Yeah, you, you you had motivation to change your situation. So for whatever reason, you know, I went and visited the seminary in New Orleans and that the preacher out of taking fishing, Adrian Rogers had told me, "Oh, you might want to consider, you know, seminary." I was trying to mm. figure out what I was going to do with my life mm. after working at the school. Mm-hmm. So uh, I did this road trip by myself, stopped in Biloxi, you know, listening to Jimmy Buffett music, down around Biloxi, and just hit all these cool areas that I heard about in songs and read about, and wound up in New Orleans, uh, visiting this beautiful Baptist seminary in Gentilly area. It's just beautiful. My dad had gone there back in the 50s, I think, mm. and uh, just really vibed, and I uh, visited Old Country Church uh, across the Poncha Train in a town called Madisonville mm. on the Chifuncte River, mm. <laughs> a little country, country church, and uh, there was a pastor there named Don Don Winters, the one I told you about I had in the Bahamas years later, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, diving together, and we just visited his family in the mountains in mm-hmm. 2016, still mm-hmm. best friends. Mm-hmm. Kids all grown up, got their own kids, mm-hmm. amazing family, mm-hmm. just role models mm-hmm. for us still. Mm-hmm. Um so uh, I, I said, you know what, prayed about it, and I uh, thought, you know, I'm going to go to seminary. It sounds like a great next adventure, you know, plus living in New Orleans would be awesome. And mm-hmm. So I did, went to seminary and uh, worked at that church as a youth and music minister, country church, and got became great friends with Don Winters. And, and he was a guy, hillbilly from, uh, well-educated hillbilly from, uh, from uh, you know, North Carolina, Tennessee mm-hmm. area, mm-hmm. the Roan Mountain area. So uh, did seminary. During the process, I'd heard about uh, that campus ministry, uh, and I didn't know that even existed, to go work on a college campus with camp- college students. And mm-hmm. a lot of them had Baptist student centers, and mm-hmm. you could run that and just have college ministry. And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. That sounds like my kind of thing. Like your you kind know. of gig, yeah. Yeah, you know, I was, uh, you know, I, I got my own... Uh, my own life, my own style, and adventures, and restless heart, and mm-hmm. you know, a formal church staff sometimes may not be the best thing for for that. And mm-hmm. So uh, I I wound up taking an intern position at the University of Miami, which mm-hmm. is where I was born. Mm-hmm. Didn't grow up there, but mm-hmm. I was born. That yeah, always so intrigued me. Kind of went back home in a way. I was always a Canes fan. I loved yeah. to watch the Hurricanes and winning the championships mm-hmm. and the flamboyancy. I remember. Just really gravitating towards being a fan. Yeah. So I went there as an intern and uh, just loved it and started uh, ministries in a lot of different campuses in the region and uh, eventually became the the director, area director, and I, and uh, I had ministries on six campuses. 
And during the process, I had uh, I had started uh, mentoring some of the athletes. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result of that, uh, meeting more athletes and meeting the coaches. Mm-hmm. And then when Butch Davis came in, he's a strong believer, a great man, great coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, learned a lot from him. He invited all the chaplains to come speak to the teams, mm-hmm. which, I, which I did. And, and wound up being invited to uh, be a part of the team as one of the chaplains and full mm-hmm. access to all the meetings, mm-hmm. locker room, training room, mm-hmm. anytime I wanted, uh, huh. practice, sidelines, yeah. right. sidelines of practice, taking part in some of the drills. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I mean, the old line, they would, they would have me hold the ball. And I forget the name of the drill, but there'd be one guy trying to block one of the D-line guys from getting to me. And that, we're talking intense, full on. So I'm this, compared to them, I'm this tiny, tiny guy. I mean, I'm, I'm athletic, but yeah. and it's just intimidating, yeah. you know, but just crazy stuff. Uh, but they wouldn't hurt me, but the right. D-line like, guys might. Not as bad as a wild pig <laughs> running at you. Yeah, actually, D-line were great guys, too. Yeah, not like the wild pig, but Matt Walters and one of the championship guys, uh, he's still a local hero. We're good buddies. He's a great spear fisherman, too, by the way. Hmm top athlete still he works for a defense contractor now mm. but um so uh yeah i came down and started as uh, working as chaplain at university became director of it uh, uh chaplain of the teams uh began chaplaining the baseball team the first year i was chaplain with them 99 they won a, a national title so i'm wearing the ring now for that and uh cinderella team the no-name team uh uh and beat Florida State two to one uh, for the championship that year, and it was like I was with them. And on the field, it was like one of the amazing experiences of my life. It was actually like literally being high mm-hmm. uh, without any drugs or alcohol. It was like surreal, floating, you know, everybody piling up. And then they wanted to have a prayer, so I knelt down, and all the whole team got around me for a prayer of thanksgiving for the for what had happened wow. and I have a great photo of that it's in the article in the stand-up journal 10-year oh, yeah. sport article mm-hmm. uh just amazing times and adventures I, I would never have I never tried for it just mm-hmm. happened you know yeah. and uh just amazing and uh thankful for them and you know uh, a little word of faith you know you uh, you keep walking and praying and and you know uh, and just have faith and you know do amazing things in life no matter what everybody else's mm-hmm. labels try to label you mediocre too short uh add all labels i had mm-hmm. you know whatever uh from different times and and none of them were true and uh mm-hmm. you know just really uh taking it day by day looking for that next adventure and trying to help people along the way yeah and and not being afraid to go through open doors and being the best you can be, you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting what you said, you know, about you, all these people assigning labels to you and none of them being true. And it really is a matter of like what you, what you believe about what people tell you. Yeah. That's life. Yeah, it is. Happens to everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, you may have incredibly good parents that know how to build you up and Mm -hmm. shelter you from that. Most people don't. They have parents doing their best, Mm -hmm. but one time or another, they have a. You can remember that one time when Weak they said moments, this. Yeah. And you're a kid, right. and you think, oh. Wish I could take that. I'm back. worthless. Yeah. You know. Right. Uh, everybody has that. I think most people, you know, or mm-hmm. or schoolmates. You know, when you're a kid, you can be really mean. Oh to yeah, others, like you know? kids are brutal to other kids. Brutal. Yeah. 
little and uh you know i get people teaching them paddle boarding they say i don't have good balance i'm like well do you have an inner ear problem no well you know what you can have good balance with right coaching and practice mm-hmm. you can have as good a balance as anybody that's all it takes and 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 also not telling yourself that you have bad balance yeah you know who told you that at what time in your life yeah what, when did you choose yeah, what coach that? said that to yeah you? right or what parent you know I, so, I think, you know, you just touched on something that I, I think is worth dwelling on for a moment also, and that is, you know, what you do, or a part of what you do is teaching paddleboard lessons, and on some level, that seems insignificant, you know, but um, as an instructor of that kind, you are able to step in to this space with other adults and, and youth also, um, they're like teachable moments, you know, to use to use the the term. Yeah. And it's it's a it's a time when adults or kids they've got a special kind of listening for whatever it is you're saying, and they make themselves vulnerable. They know they're vulnerable, and they're just open to being guided. And yeah. you teach them not only how to balance on their board and how to paddle their board correctly. But a lot of what you can do is teach life lessons. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, little things, and that's why I love teaching, because I'm one of those guys that, man, I wish I had been coached when I was young. I wish Mm -hmm. I had gotten this training when I was young. I Mm -hmm. wish, man, what would happen to me if someone had told me this about Mm -hmm. my body and about the athletic stance Mm -hmm. and about how to body awareness and you know, your feet angle, you know, the toes in instead of toes out uh, Mm -hmm. as an athlete, you know, just little things I teach. And I love teaching, you know, adults. You can change adults' lives. I learned it later in life. Mm -hmm. I became a a much better athlete once I started learning and stuff in my 30s and 40s, you know. And and then kids especially, Mm -hmm. teach them about their bodies, about uh, just good athleticism. And, um, so yeah, I I find a lot of joy and satisfaction uh, in doing that, and uh, how to try to treat, treat every client as family that come in, you know. And you know, the, the Bible talks about building treasures in heaven instead of treasures in earth. You know, earth uh, instead of you know when you die, you can't take that money in the bank with you, but you can take uh, what you've done for other humans with you. You know, they're they're I think our spirits are eternal and. Yeah. And even when you're gone, what you know, if you've helped somebody else and they in turn help others and others, you make a difference in humanity. Mm-hmm. And that's that's treasures, that's eternal treasures, that's mm-hmm. eternal income. Mm-hmm. You know, and you have to have both. You have to have money to survive. But um, yeah. but there's a there's a different kind of capital. Yeah, that kind of thing of meaningful yeah. life. And mm-hmm. you know, one of the dangers of having done so many things in my life and adventures is. I've gotten to a point where I wake up in the morning. I'm like bored. Mm-hmm. What's next? There's, you know, is What's there something else? Yeah. And when you reach that point, it's not a good place mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm. It's not a good place. Mm-hmm. I don't care how healthy you are. You know, uh, if there's if there's no new excitement to look forward to, then you know. And thankfully, I've gotten out of that. Yeah. And, uh, well, it sounds like your next, yeah, my your baby, next adventure yeah, I got over my there is... 52. Uh, I have my first baby yeah. right here. She's amazing. She's sucking on her fingers right now. I think she's ready for a little meal. 
you want to hit the pause switch on this and and you can uh you can give her a little food and then we'll we'll we'll, we'll start it back up in a, in a in a few minutes yeah yeah let's do that All right, I'm uh, I'm rolling tape again. So, Gerard, uh, I'm going to back up and ask you um, something I'm curious to know, and that is, uh, what what does a chaplain do for sports teams at a big university like you did? Like, what what was your role with with those teams? Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people wonder that. Uh, what do you do? Just uh, have church services or something for the guys? But that's not it at all. We actually encourage them to be involved in local churches as much as they can. But uh, as far as me, you know, there's different chaplains. So, um, you know, I, I, re I really I believe you can affect uh, their lives in a big way during that time. There's so much pressure on the athletes. They're full-time athletes, full-time students. And in a program like that, there's full-time spotlight on them, too. And... Um, so a lot of pressure for uh, for young people, you know, 18 to 22. Sure. Um, so we're with them, you know. I, I would meet with uh, with uh, players during the week and just kind of mentoring sessions. We might do a little devotional, you know, and and just really help them stay healthy mm. with their faith and mm -hmm. spiritually, mm -hmm. not be so distracted where they let that slide. And yeah. also just uh, challenging them to be moral men, you know, because mm -hmm. they have opportunity in this world when you've got when you're on a pedestal pedestal you can take advantage of people yeah. and uh um just challenging them to be men of integrity mm. and uh and you know it makes a big difference in their whole lives and also lives around them that could be hurt by them yeah or yeah. helped so, you, so i mean you had an insulating role in a way yeah yeah and uh insulating but also uh revigorating and refocusing mm-hmm uh, and uh, just helping them stay not just a great athlete or a great student, but a great person, mm -hmm. you know, and um, for the future. Uh, and in very real ways, I know I helped the team. You know, for a team to win a championship, it takes a lot more than just having better athletes and better coaches mm -hmm. than the other guys. Because mm -hmm. at that level, that's not what separates the team. It, that, that's important. Yeah. But that gives you an opportunity to win and to win a championship. It doesn't like, guarantee you. Are you saying you were part well, of that team? In uh, a, in absolutely. A uh, the, that in baseball, you know, there's a team chemistry. There's a mentality. There's a mental health. Mm -hmm. There's an attitude. And uh, that is a huge, uh, huge aspect to championship teams and also being a winner in life, you know. So, um, I mean, little, little episodes like ones that stand out. Uh, during the Butch Davis years. Now, Butch Davis, he wanted, uh, he had several chaplains and he really wanted those guys to be uh, helped, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, and he wanted us on the sidelines and uh, doing everything we could, even on the sidelines, mm -hmm. to help the guys. So, mm -hmm. he wanted us involved. And so, I remember one game, uh, it was the year they should have won the championship, uh, but ended up going to the Sugar Bowl because the BCS computer screwed them out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but we were playing Florida State, and uh, we went behind with a uh, just a few minutes left, and the whole sideline was really depressed. You know, I mean, just quiet. 
And I started shouting out, hey, you got to believe, you got to believe, guys, come on, you got to believe. And they started cheering and and really started uh, putting the energy into the game and into the guys coming in and out of the game. And, you know, they they drove down and Ken Dorsey made this great pass to Jeremy Shockey, still a good friend of mine, uh, over the middle and beat Florida State. Of course, that year the BCS computers put them in the championship game in the Orange Bowl Miami rather than us even though their only loss was to us. Mm -hmm. We only had one loss, which was the first game of the year. Mm -hmm. So definitely, uh, but that's another story. I'm not going to write too much about that. Um, You know, we smoked Florida in in the Sugar Bowl that year. I was on the sidelines for that, being on the field for practice, trying to kick field goals with the O-linemen, and (laughs) not very successfully. But... uh, (laughs) um, I mean, one of the star players, you star in the NFL, obviously not going to mention names, but... I was on the sidelines one big game, and and he uh, he he came over and said, uh, Gerard, you know, can you can you help me pray for me or something? He's I, you know, a few weeks ago I got my bell rung and I just hadn't been able to hit, you know, do my thing since basically that little fear in there. And uh, mm-hmm. would you pray for me? And, I, and I'm like, yeah. I said, you know, just stay. Let me try when the, when that uh, try to stay in an attitude of prayer and trusting God to protect you and asking Him to and and give you confidence and uh, give you courage and and then I prayed for him and pretty much it changed. He turned around in that game and started just being a superstar again and uh, I know that helped. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't me, but it was me being there and and being available and, and God being able to use me in that instance to yeah. encourage him and change yeah. his mindset. Right. You know, and and, uh, and he went on to be an All-Pro for many years in the NFL. And uh, there was another time. Uh, it's a story a lot of people don't know. Uh, several of the star players were coming back from a team meeting uh, in Lauderdale mm-hmm. in a convertible BMW, and 55 mile an hour, eight lanes of traffic, and uh, there was uh, something happened in front of them. And they got in an accident, all of them thrown from the car at 55 mile an hour. Wow. Uh, yeah. And uh, one broke the steering wheel, went through the front window. Dang. And the other two thrown out on the pavement. Absolute miracle. None of them had more than things and bruises. One guy had a broken rib that went through the through the window. And these wow. are super, two of the three, became, you know, actually one of the three became superstar in the NFL. And uh, the other two, you'd know if I mentioned it. But, you know, obviously it wasn't their time. Obviously the hand of God was on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're all believers. And uh, the one in the backseat who became on, went on to become a superstar. Uh, and he, I went to his house and met with him. And as he was telling me, he was just crying about it. And uh, I prayed with him. And he said, uh, as he could see the accident coming, and he prayed that God just, help him go to sleep and not experience it. And he said that's exactly what happened. He laid down in the back seat. The next thing he remembers, he hears the other one of the other guy's voices calling his name, and he wakes up laying on the, on the road. Wow. So he has zero. When he prayed God to help him just go to sleep and not experience the crash, that's exactly what happened to him. Wow. So uh, it's a miracle these guys are not dead. Much less maimed, you know, just unbelievable. Mm. It's a lot of good stories like that and um, a lot of teachable moments yeah. in athletics. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot from Butch Davis. Uh, 
he took a lot of two and three star recruits and made them into champions. And he did it. He came on the team and uh, took over from a coach that wasn't that much of a disciplinarian. Great coach, but not a disciplinarian. But he took over. He was under sanctions. And he came and was an absolute disciplinarian. Mm. I mean, you can be the star on the team. If you're late for the bus, you didn't make it to the game. Mm. You didn't play. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolute disciplinarian. Mm. And uh, what he did, well, on the same side of the, the other side of that, there's not one player on that team that had any doubt that he loved them. Mm-hmm. No doubt at all. He mm-hmm. cared for those guys. Yeah. But you couldn't get away with anything, mm. no matter who you were. Yeah. So that and that's much like God, you know, absolute respect and and, uh, and but yet absolute love, mm-hmm. and it's for our good so that we can succeed mm-hmm. and excel in life. Mm-hmm. So He set parameters, uh, those those rules that set the it set the uh, environment for the team to really flourish. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have to worry if the guy next to you was out partying that night and going to show up hungover for practice. Yeah, that wasn't allowed. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to worry about. You know, and uh, and then the leaders of the team, you know, uh, raised up. They didn't really need a coach for years. They coached the team. Mm-hmm. They kept everybody in line. Yeah, uh, real student leaders, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, another time, there's one of the uh, one of the guys on the team, a linebacker. You know, when you shook your hand, it would crush your hand. You know, and then uh. I was the only one he really trusted, and he, he came to me in secret and asked me to start meeting with him weekly. He really wanted to get his life right with God mm-hmm. and uh, get his family life right and all that. And so I started meeting with him in a fraternity house uh, and uh, where you could get lunch once a week. And we were going through a devotional uh, called uh, Experiencing God, you know, real challenging for men, and prayed with him. And, uh, and he was really making his life right and uh, died in a car accident. Uh, uh, shortly after. Wow. And um, so. Uh, it uh, almost uh, sounds like he was having premonitions. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I didn't get that at all. No. But he just really did want to mm-hmm. stop ruining, you know, stop living in the darkness and live in the light. Maybe you know, at the right time. Huh? Yeah. Turn his life around. And, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I didn't get any recognition for that and then try to and, I didn't get a place to speak at his funeral, but uh, like other chaplains did because they were in with the administration. I just, you know, you just make subtle differences in, in life at a time and try to be authentic, yeah. not have an agenda like everybody else in their life since they're star athletes kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we're going to tell another great story. Um, while I was there at the UM, I moved out to the beach, to South Beach, mm-hmm. and a lot of good stories about the culture there Yeah, and because uh, I love to surf. And fish. Well, I had a lot of the baseball players out to fish me th- with me at dusk one night. It was kind of a choppy night, kind of rib high waves coming in. Yeah. I saw a lot of fish uh, schooling and attacking bait fish uh, at the, right at the inlet. Mm-hmm. And I waded out as far as I could with the wave slapping me in the chest and cast my, my mullet, my bait fish out there. And all of a sudden, I saw a big V coming at me like a fish running. And it was this big, what we call a ladyfish, about a two foot long fish a big ladyfish, running from something drastically. And and, uh, and then behind it was a bull shark, you know, probably a six or eight foot bull shark, chasing it, teeth. I could see teeth. And uh, it came and he brushed, the shark brushed by my side, chasing to eat this ladyfish. 
Now, I was scared to death, but I knew if I'd have moved, tried to move out of the way, I'd have probably been gutted because I knew that bull sharks, especially since movement in the water puts a little current, mm -hmm. and that's a, a big way they pick that up, sense it, and know where to attack. Yeah. So I have no doubt if I had to try to move out of the way, he would have gutted me. Yeah, he could come and, in for uh, you instead of that right fish. He was right there. His teeth went right by my, my belly and my chest. And he went by me, and uh, I, uh, I walked in and told the guy, did you see that? And I'm like, yeah, we saw that. Unbelievable. Well, where did the shark go after it left, after it went by I you? I just kept chasing that fish, uh, that uh, ladyfish. And so when it was far I enough away, you, slowly you just slowly moved walked mm -hmm. to shore yeah which was about 20 yards yeah uh -huh. so uh yeah interesting story but uh so when i moved to south beach it was around i guess nine to 90 or something like that I remember yeah. uh, 99 sorry probably about nine i don't know maybe it was before that probably mid 90s when i moved out there yeah and um it was an interesting interesting culture south beach was not what it is now it was just starting to find itself you know it was a pretty run down place um and i got to know the guys that grew up there and they were great surfers and uh they called themselves the sbu the south beach underground hmm. and uh really good hearted guys family guys but rough and they had yeah. to be rough because that was a rough neighborhood hmm. in the 70s and 80s hmm. uh like scarface neighborhoods yeah you know well the yeah. the the 80s and Miami was right war zone, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean that's so that's that's the story. You had to, to be tough to survive as a kid in, in South Beach, growing up there in those days. Yeah, and um, the neighborhood I lived in was South the Fifth, and there was like one high rise in that whole five mm -hmm. block mm -hmm. square block radius. Now it's like Towers. the highest priced condos, yeah. you know, right. lots and lots of them. Yeah. So in uh, the place I moved into was 135 Ocean Drive, Atlantic View Towers, the the quintessential surfing apartment building uh long thin apartments with balconies overlooking the ocean mm -hmm. and i could see the break that's where the break is the surf break and i was paying like uh i eventually got out to a big one bedroom sixth floor overlooking the beach for like 1250 a month mm -hmm. <laughs> crazy mm -hmm. and uh so um i was when i was living there i had a buddy who lived who worked as a manager in the quicksilver store yeah and he, he came in one day, and I had like seven boards from just surfing most of my life. Yeah. Uh, and he said, you know, Gerard, you should start uh, a surf school and start renting your boards and teaching people. I get asked every day by tourists, and there's nobody in town doing it. There's no surf school. Yeah. And, and this was before surf schools were the thing. I mean, there may have been one official surf school in the U.S., right. uh, that family out right. in California. You know? uh -huh. And so I was like, yeah, okay, sounds good. What should I call it? And South Sobe, Sobe, Sobe Surf, South Beach, Sobe Surf. Yeah, SobeSurf.com was available, yeah. took it. Uh, made up little cards, you know, and and they they had them in the Quicksilver shop, the lifeguards, gave me lifeguards who I knew, and and they would send me people. I Just guerrilla style, I, I even made a banner, a big, like, uh, eight-foot banner that said uh, surf lessons with my phone number on it and hung it over my balcony on weekends. <laughs> Not legal whatsoever, but got away with it. And uh, the... Uh, that's, that's how they knew uh, you were yeah. open for business was when... Yeah, they, and the lifeguards would point people up there. Oh, yeah, surf lessons, yep, right up there. So call that number. <laughs> so uh, fun times, you know, and uh, taught a lot of people how to surf. 
uh, learn to teach people how to surf. You learn as you go, you know, and mm-hmm. yeah, I grew grew from that. And then uh, eventually, uh, one day about I don't think probably oh five, uh, I was out on the beach uh, finishing up surf lessons, and the weather had gotten bad, and the seas were choppy, getting and stormy, stormy, and uh, yeah. my buddy Rick Arango, who's a great waterman, is also was a male, also was a male model, and he had, uh, he knew Gabrielle Reese, who was married to Laird Hamilton, one of the guys who helped evolve hmm. the sport. Okay, interesting connection. And, uh, yeah. So he'd come back from visiting Laird uh, in Gabrielle in, uh, in Maui. Yeah, Maui, yeah. And he's carrying this big old board, homemade board, and uh, and uh, a wooden custom paddle he brought back. And I was like, what the heck he, is that? He brought it back, or did he, he come back to back Florida? He from brought Hawaii. it back from Hawaii. Yeah. Interesting. And they were hand-making stuff. There that was must no have cost a fortune to fly that thing back. I don't know. Or maybe he had a ship, but... I don't I don't know. Anyway, yeah. He probably brought it back on the plane. But <laughs> they didn't know what it was. What is that, surfboard? Okay. Yeah. So uh, he told me, yeah, some things Laird's doing, stand-up paddling. They're just kind of developing this. And yeah. I tried it. It was choppy conditions, but I paddled out to the buoy and back, fell, fell a couple times, but I was, I was like, bells going off in my head. I was like, this is awesome. This is just what I need for my business, for one thing. Uh-huh. And I love it. So I got a, uh, a lifeguard rescue board and uh, a wooden paddle. Got from Bass Pro Shop. Tallest you could get back then was five and a half feet yeah. anywhere in the lower 48. Uh-huh. I uh, started paddling. I paddled out to two-mile buoy every day and back, or I paddled along the shore, you know, and back, you know, about 15, 16 blocks and back, just uh-huh. working out, getting attention. This is, like, totally yeah. primitive equipment, too. Absolutely, I mean, and no one, nobody had seen this before. There was, it was not so on TV. So you were, like, the first guy, I mean, not the, f- yeah. the first guy on South Beach, cause, but... Well, I was I was uh, definitely one of the pioneers of the sport on the East Coast. And, well, uh, that guy, your friend, yeah. brought the board back from Hawaii. Right, right. He turned you on to it. Right. And then you just scavenged for stuff you could use to do right. the same and thing. Right, and lifeguards and all started getting, you know, uh, handmade equipment. And mm-hmm. and we were all friends. You know, we're all watermen and uh, buddies. And so, uh, interesting story. Uh, uh, one day I was out doing my long shore paddle instead of going to swim buoy and about you know you know between the outer swim buoys and, and the shore it was right after the lifeguards had gone off duty in the afternoon and waved at a couple of them if they left i went all the way down like 18th street and thank goodness i didn't have a, a radio playing in my ear you know while i'm paddling and i'm paddling about halfway back and i hear this gurgling noise weird and i, and I look and there's a guy standing in front of me just frozen like a statue looking out into the ocean mm-hmm. and I looked out and there were two young men at college age just about to go under for the last time they didn't even have the energy to wave for help or call for help just gurgling going under and the story was I found out later was yeah. one of them didn't know how to swim they were throwing the football he mm-hmm. stepped off a little too deep yeah. you know couldn't swim I don't went know in over his head yeah. yep. went over his head and started drifting out the other friend had never been trained as lifeguard. Didn't know when you try to rescue, to rescue someone. Yeah. If you don't know, they they drown you. Yeah, trying to get try out, to climb head on your head water. and get yeah. out of the water. Yeah. So he had done that, and they were both right at the point of drowning. Uh, and I paddled over to him and pulled him on the front of the board, you know, coughing up water, pulled him to shore. And I remember it was Easter, and I because I said, uh, "Happy Easter, boys! You just got your resurrection." Yeah. And uh, your mamas didn't lose their boys today. Yeah. Wow. And uh. And I said, you thank God. 
And uh, so uh, it's kind of heavy, man. It's heavy. I know without a doubt they would have died had I not become a paddleboarder for one thing, because yeah. there's no way I'd have been paddling back and forth. Yeah. So uh, the emergence of the sport saved their lives what as well as me. What was that guy me. that was standing just there back. looking out the ocean? He was just frozen, like like we talked before. You never know how you're going to react mm-hmm. in a trauma situation. Some people freeze; they can't do anything. Yeah. And he was frozen. Just he couldn't move. He knew up. they were drowning. And couldn't make his body move. Wow. Yeah. So uh, that's common. If you ask lifeguards, it's not an abnormal thing for people not trained, you know. They just don't know what to do. Paralyzed. You know what to do in a crisis. uh, And so you just lock up. Um, So, yeah, good story. And then uh, you wanted me to talk about the culture of South Beach. We talked about the South Beach underground guys and really good guys, great surfers. I remember doing a funeral for one that really popular young man and uh, had a great family. He'd been he kicked heroin, kicked heroin, is several years off of it, mm-hmm. and uh, he uh, he wound up relapsing and, and dying. And uh, yeah. we had a funeral, and uh, I did the funeral for him. And you know, a lot of a lot of heroin users relapse and overdose. Yeah, because they can't take the same dosage that they could yeah. when they quit. Yep, and. Uh, no, so that was the culture. It was a rough yeah. drug culture. And, and uh, like I said, guys, they all had hearts of gold, and a lot of them made it out of it. There's one buddy of mine went to, he went to California with the Hells Angels. And I remember sitting, I was back in South Beach and happened to see him at a Cuban diner. We sat down and had, had dinner and mm-hmm. lunch, rather. And mm-hmm. he's telling me about it. And I, and I said, you know, I hope you're not hurting anybody. And he goes, well, only, only those who deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was kind of the chaplain, you know, of yeah, the... Yeah. Uh, you were the chaplain the of the SBU. There. Yeah, of the SBU <laughs> and uh, unofficial, but... Um, Official chaplain. Yeah, so... Uh, well, you and later him, you, you I, well, later I heard he was one of the guys that helped write that TV series about the motorcycle gang. Oh, yeah. Really, really popular one. He's one of the writers of it. I, that's, I heard that. Don't know if it's true, but I wouldn't doubt it. So... Yeah, let's hit the pause switch again here. All right. Sounds good. All right. <clears throat> so the next part, uh, we're going to move from Miami to Cocoa Beach. So that's kind of the direction we're going to go. Um, you talked about how you got started in paddleboarding. You met this guy, your friend. He had been visiting with Laird Hamilton right. in Maui. <clears throat> right, this right. guy brought a board back or somehow got a board and he was like the first person you had ever seen in Cocoa Beach using a stand-up paddleboard in Miami was that the first time you'd ever seen it in your life yep or in Miami yeah Yeah, that was the first time I'd ever seen it in my life I mean most people had never seen it and so what was the conversation that happened when you when you saw this guy I mean I guess you got talking because you're old friends but yeah I just asked him oh you know what the heck is that he likes Told me he was visiting Laird, and they were working on this new sport, stand-up paddleboarding, and and uh, I think he showed me how he did it, and uh, I said, "Can I try it?" And you know, he's like, "Wow, you're really good for these conditions. You did great." Yeah, and choppy I, water. Yeah, it was, you choppy said it was water. Stormy. Yeah. yeah, I did fall a couple of times, but not much, you know. And it was, you know, these were not wide boards back. You know, at the beginning, you didn't know to make a wide board. You know, yeah. to make it more stable. So. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's how it started. And then, um, 
immediately started implementing it into my business, uh, you know, with the, um, on the beach, a few other boards and paddles. And I mean, back then, how did you, where did you get boards and paddles from? Well, there were no paddle boards in production. Mm -hmm. Uh, people were custom making them. I know Hawaiian shapers were making them. Yeah. I mean, who was making uh, them in South Florida? Well, nobody really. So we, we bought, uh, lifeguard rescue boards. Okay. And use them. Like fiberglass, fiberglass, right. rescue fiberglass, boards. Fiberglass, big, floaty. Just basically tandem surfboards. Uh, pretty much, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I tried to, uh, you know, I had a uh, resale license, so I'm calling every paddle manufacturer I can find in uh, 48 states and mm -hmm. seeing if they'll, if they make any paddle over four, over five and a half feet or if they consider making longer paddles. Do a custom paddle. Yeah, yeah. Nobody would give me the time of day, so... Uh, my dad, his hobby was carpentry, and he had a big, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I forget the name of the like machine, a, like but a, oh, a planer, a big planer. planer. Yeah. So we uh, we started playing out these big planks of wood, and first we did a cypress and cut a paddle out of that and shaped it with the hand shaper. Nothing fancy, no angle in the blade, but uh, mm. it worked good and broke it and made it one out of cypress that was thicker and long, you know, kind of oval long ways uh, to the mm. force. And that was awesome. That lasted a long time. I wrapped the handle with rope like you would uh, a harpoon. Oh, yeah. And uh, Interesting. for the grip. And mm -hmm. I still have that one. It's broken. It's over here against the wall. Mm. And then uh, we started making a one out of hickory. Yeah. And I uh, got halfway through making it, and uh, production paddles started becoming available. How did you find out that there were production paddles? Like, did you see it in a magazine, or did somebody call well, you, or I, uh, just kind of the, the, the first paddleboard production company uh, was out of Hawaii called C4 Waterman, and they C4 Waterman and Paddle Surf Hawaii actually uh, those guys started together and, and split right at the beginning. So C4 Waterman was trying to go uh, worldwide and. Uh, Paddle Surf Hawaii wasn't necessarily wanting to do that. That was Blaine Chambers, yeah. Yeah, Blaine with uh, Paddle Surf Hawaii. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so the C4 Hawaiian guys, um, they heard about me in, uh, in uh, paddle boarding in South Florida, and one of their staff members called me from Hawaii. Okay. And uh, let me know they're trying to set up a distributor in Sarasota, mm -hmm. uh, Juan Rodriguez and his partner. And uh, wanted me to have their boards to help spread the stoke, you know. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah. They just wanted you to basically get it out there, put yeah, it in front of exactly, people. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, obviously, uh, South Beach, very highly visible place. Yeah. A lot of. Yeah. Exactly. So. Yeah. I went. Um, I went to Sarasota, met those guys, uh, brought back a few boards, and. Mm -hmm. Wow, they're like luxury liners compared to what I'd been using yeah, to surf on. Yeah, you were using all improvised equipment. And right, and I, and I was And you finally too. had a proper paddle, yeah? Yeah, and a fiberglass paddle. I still have two of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, huh. One, the fiberglass is starting to come off in your hand, so I got have to throw that one away. Mm -hmm. But the other one, it's still good after all these years. Wow. And I was like 08, I think, 07, 08. Wow. And then, um, so yeah, so that was the first boards, and... I was in a, as far as I know, two of the first stand-up paddle races uh, on the East Coast and pretty much worldwide were finding out 
as the stand-up journal was collecting stories, mm-hmm. the editor said to me, he goes, you know, you know, you were right at the beginning, uh, even worldwide. You know, right. it was, you're right there. And well, what races were those? Well, the U.S. LG United States Lifeguard Association. USLA, yeah. Else, yeah, whatever those acronyms <laughs> are supposed to be. Yeah. Um, they were having uh, races up and down the coast for the lifeguards. and. Right. I wasn't a lifeguard, but I knew them all, and I was invited to participate because they had just added uh, stand-up paddling as an exhibition heat to those. Uh, so so uh, it was the USLA that kind of got that started a little bit? As far as I know, yeah. And so um, interesting. I did a couple. I did two races, one them both, and just yeah. was like, wow, what a gut check. I feel so great. And one was mm-hmm. <clears throat> just a distance, and the other one was in and out of surf around mm-hmm. the pier. You know, lifeguard style, battle of the paddle style, yeah. and that overhead surf. So that was pretty cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And then um, <clears throat> about '09, my dad was sick with dementia yeah. up in Lakeland, mm-hmm. and I realized I needed to move closer to him because I knew he didn't have much time left, and that we were best friends, and and he couldn't do anything on his own really. Yeah. So uh, I wound up moving up to Cocoa Beach. Uh, and setting up a business, I leased out an old rundown waterfront lodge. Yeah. So it was your it was your it was your your father's health that uh, prompted you to right relocate up up north. Right. Up and north. Uh, so relocated up north, found this lodge, uh, and um, uh, kind of built it up over the years into a major destination on the East Coast for stand up paddling. I had some of the top world champions come through there, but yeah. you know and. Great kind of brewery events there for the media, and once they started sponsoring me and helping, uh, asking me to help them launch a couple of their mm-hmm. uh, beers in Florida, and mm-hmm. big history there. But um, yeah, I moved up and um, was in uh, really the second year of, of some of the first stand-up surfing competitions uh, in Cocoa Beach. So it was a fortuitous moving to this area. Yeah to get into the stand-up surfing scene mm-hmm. and be a part of it, be a part of developing it yeah. and maturing it. So the NKF, National Kidney Foundation Surf Fest, Easter Surf Fest, the Waterman's Challenge, they started uh, adding stand-up paddling to their events, I think, in 08. Mm-hmm. And then 09, I competed and made a lot of great friends and, uh, and uh, you know, started taking over the NKF, directing that paddleboard portion of it every year since and um competing and the ESA eventually put it in as a as a you know a sport in their competitions and mm-hmm. I was in on that I finished second for our region between the Fisher boys who are now top pros and really good friends mm-hmm. um the Fisher boys sorry the Grant <laughs> Fisher Grant and Kieran Grant mm-hmm. so sorry Fisher so uh yeah, big part of the stand-up history uh, on the East Coast, and that's why the Stand-Up Journal asked me to do an article for them in their 10-year sport edition that came out this last September 2016. Yeah. It's got a picture of Kai Lenny hydrofoiling on the on the front. The blue cover. Yeah, so uh, six-page article with photos came out great. I was really honored and glad they asked me to do that just to yeah, kind of cool. solidify a lot of... The history and, and my and, you know, legacy kind of thing and definitely puts you in the in the cast of characters for sure. Yeah, and I'm just so thankful. It's nothing like I planned. It's just yeah, 
thank God, right place, right time. And, and I really vibed with the sport and was in a position to help it grow. And mm-hmm. a lot of other stuff I did that helped the sport grow, uh, you know, I was on the travel channel early, one of the first ones on it. Yeah. Teaching Bridget of Bridget's Sexiest Beaches uh, program how to paddleboard. And then um, I was uh, a lot of other media stuff. Uh, first look, uh, the big series. Uh, and then lots of little news shorts. From <clears throat> news shorts and national yeah. shows. And I love doing it. I'm, you know, I'm ham. I love <laughs> being in front of the camera and, you know, performing for people. And yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's been good. I had hard, you know, like everybody in life, I had ups and downs, hard times I had to get through during my life, and been knocked down a few yeah. times to the beginning, and have to start over. And, well, and, uh, coming you know, coming up to Cocoa Beach was a kind of a start over in a way. You know, yep. One uh, one story I think is worth retelling is about you uh, moving from Miami up to Cocoa Beach. Is the story about Kona and how you how you uh, picked up your dog. Yeah, that's a good story. And love Kona. She's like, <clears throat> like I say, she's my uh, doggy daughter raised by humans. You know, she's a gr- good, good spirit. And mm-hmm. Big part of the paddleboard history, too, because she's been in a lot of the videos, a lot of the ads that have helped propel paddleboarding and popularity. But, uh, yeah, I moved up in 09, and then in 010, we had the coldest winter on record mm. ever mm. in in central florida and uh like ever 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 i mean it was in the 20s for uh, like a month wow so you can imagine the lagoon the backwaters got in the 40s yeah. and stayed in the 40s for a long time it's cold everything was dying huge yeah. fish kill sea turtles uh getting to where they couldn't move and yeah, just w- birds killing them and yeah we saved a lot of sea turtles on paddle boards. Yeah, how did you do that? I mean, were you paddling out and just picking <laughs> you them You paddle picking out. Them the green turtles, who are a lot of them in the backwaters here, they're just floating mm-hmm. up. And if they stay long enough, the birds come pick their eyes out and kill them. Gnarly. So uh, you see them floating. You can paddle up to them, haul them up on your board, and then uh, take them back to shore. And then you call the – there was a group that was uh, – Bringing trucks around and, and picking them up. And Would you warm them up, like get them warm? And oh, in the sun, you lean them up on the, you know, in the grass, and yeah, best you could. And then uh, they'd pick them up, and they took like six or eight thousand of them down to South Florida and let them go. Dang! Yeah, How did they move six thousand turtles? One at a time. Yeah, <laughs> <No. laughs> yeah. They load them up in trucks. You and, just uh, cart them down. Take there. them down there. Yeah. So that was. How, really, how how many turtles were you picking up? Like we probably rescued thirty or forty. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, you just go out and find a few turtles and bring them in. Is that how we go? Yeah. Or Load them up on how, the board and bring them they? in. Like some big, some uh, you know probably uh, sixty, eighty pounds. Some small, you know, uh-huh. ten, twenty pounds. Wow. They green, just be green turtles. Yeah. Listless and cold and. Yeah, they're, they're reptiles, so yeah, right. They, forty degree water doesn't sit. That's why they don't live up north. That's, that's why they live in Florida. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was something. So anyway, that winter, the first winter here, I'm trying to get the business going. I still maintained the business in Miami, but I had someone else running it. It was just kind of fizzling, mm-hmm. and uh, I. Uh, my best friend up here, Richard, he has a fishing guide business, and I got to know some of them, mm-hmm. his friends. 
it was it was it wasn't just a cold winter, it was a nasty winter. It was rainy, nasty weather. So all of us were sitting around like Russian roulette, you know, what do we do? How do we yeah. support our families? Right. I didn't have a family to support. Yeah, but, but I mean, what are you going to... He did, and the other ones were like, what are we going to do? Maybe I could teach again, you know, that kind of stuff. Like um, really reconsidering their like, yeah. careers. It's like yeah. our industry shut down. Yeah. So pretty depressing, and I was, I'd moved up. I was single at the time and lonely, and uh, I started looking for a dog as a companion. Yeah. And I went around to different shelters and... And uh, just, it had to vibe. I could, you know, I believed I would feel it on the right dog, you know, mm-hmm. sense it. And nothing was right. And woke up one Saturday, another cold, dismal day, and obviously not going to be any business. And got on the internet, checked Craig, check Craigslist out for dogs, and there was a picture of Kona. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> a couple in uh, Titusville said, yeah, the dog's three-month-old dog just pays for you know, a couple hundred bucks for the shots and you can have her and mm-hmm. get home. Their shift work and their shifts changed and they weren't home to take care of her. So mm-hmm. I called them. They're like, yeah, come out. I drove out. And it was love at first sight. I mean, Kona just came, jumped up, started giving me doggy kisses. It was just like like she'd been waiting for me to get home mm-hmm. all day. Mm-hmm. And now I'm home. Oh, daddy, you're home. Yeah, it was right. just like that. And I was like, wow, this is the dog for me. Yeah. And beautiful dog, too. And and so they said, I told them about where I live and what I do, and they didn't even take any money. They wouldn't take money. They just like, don't pay us for anything. Just take her. We're just so happy. Mm-hmm. She's getting a good home. And mm-hmm. I remember riding home in the Bronco, and she, she didn't make a really a noise until months later. Just mm-hmm. a quiet, humble dog, but just super loving, super obedient, yeah. very smart. Yeah. And uh, I, I raised her, I, I eased her into the water, made sure she didn't have any negative experiences in the water, took her paddleboarding. Yeah, like how old, how, old, how old was she when you got her on paddleboard? Probably immediately. immediately right yeah. away, yeah. But again, making sure it was nothing scary. And eventually I would take her out quarter mile, half mile from shore, mm-hmm. <clears throat> have her swim in beside my board, and mm-hmm. uh, kept just developing her as a really strong, confident swimmer. Mm-hmm. You know, and years later, I would see her swimming way out, you know, chasing dolphins or something out off back. And uh, and I'm like, Kona, get in here, you know. <laughs> like, oh, what, what? You know, she swim back. Yeah, you raised so, her that way. <laughs> great water dog. Yeah. And she's, uh, her and I did a shoot for the uh, Space Coast Office of Tourism mm-hmm. years ago. And uh, paddleboarding was gaining popularity. A lot of stars were doing it and such. And. They wanted to film uh, paddle boarding and use it to advertise Cocoa Beach. Mm-hmm. And this maybe three or four years ago, probably, maybe mm-hmm. more. So I said, sure, come out for free. You know, they did video and then uh, some good stills with me and Kona on the board. Yeah. And today, they're still using one of those shots of her and I on the board uh, on billboards all across Southeast USA. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And uh, I had a buddy call me from Atlanta. Oh, you're famous. I saw you on the yeah. billboard. You know, you were going on. So when I had long hair, I have short hair now, but uh, a few years ago I had long curly hair. Longer hair. Uh, Matthew McConaughey look, uh, yeah. you know, I kept hearing. But um, so uh, it's not a bad look. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's cool, and he paddleboarded, and he oh, did yeah. beach, deep, deep sand beach runs too, which is what I did in mm-hmm. Miami. Mm-hmm. And there was times where I had little, you know, uh, teenagers chasing me, thinking I was McConaughey. Oh, was really? Doing my deep sand run. Yeah, yeah, especially down there in Miami. Yeah, huh? yeah that happened a couple of times. Oh, yeah. Funny. <laughs> yeah. So uh good times. 
Uh, so moved up here, made it through that winter, and then just really started making a name, you know, and as the sport grew, yeah. my popularity grew. And then later that year, uh, <coughs> Kona Brewery uh, found me, and they were looking for a paddleboarder to help them launch were they just Cocoa looking Brown. On, looking online, a, just looking around I online, guess. Or? Yeah, they heard about me somehow, yeah. researched me. And, hmm. and uh, came to visit, the execs came to visit, and... They loved my place. I mean, it was a little, still a little run down, you know, and they're, yeah. they could just love the vibe and they love me and, and well, I had a dog named Kona. Your, your, vi- your, uh, your, your lodge there, it was a little bit shabby, you know, kind of had a, a chic look to it though. Yeah. And I couldn't afford to really doctor it up, but well, I mean, it did was everything I could, but it was like really down to earth. I mean, you had a yeah. nice backyard, it went right up to the water, right. beach was across the street and it was a great place for parties because you could just fire up the barbecues build right, a fire bonfire. yeah bonfire got some hawaiian friends musician friends here would always come play for free and deck you know and kona would always supply the refreshments if we gave them a heads up and mm-hmm. free and we had some of the best luau's there uh yeah community yeah. you know family friendly great parties good times yeah good times yeah good memories like i said uh a lot of the top athletes came through there mm-hmm. uh a part of this up history like annabelle anderson uh, who i'd met at contest before with uh, we were both sponsored by the same uh company at that time mm-hmm. and uh <clears throat> she came from new zealand and uh trained at my lodge for a couple of weeks uh just before she won her first battle of the paddle and oh, yeah. of course has won many since and just mm-hmm. become an amazing champion amazing yeah. athlete i learned a lot from her and then um you like know, what can't... did you what did you learn from annabelle anderson a lot, so you know, just her training. Uh, one thing I'll always remember. She's an intense athlete. Yeah. Yeah, and she, I remember she'd get up and run in the morning first thing, and then do her paddle training. I, I said, "How do you get up and run every morning?" I, she's like, "I don't. I just don't think about it. I just do it." That that always sticks in my mind. Yeah. Like I get up now and paddle in the morning, and I try keep telling myself, "Don't think about it. Just do it. Just go do it." Yeah. And then you come back and have your breakfast, and but just go do it. Just just mm-hmm. get up and go do it. Yeah. Don't think about Don't it. Don't think about it. Huh. And then uh, another thing she taught me was about. Uh, I think she was said she was an Olympic cross country skier for her country. I believe she said that. And um, in training for that, they would hook her up to monitor to sensors and see how pure her movement was forward and back in line. Mm-hmm. You know, in her stroke or in a cross country stroke. Was she keeping her center of mass completely down the center? Yeah. And then on the on the return with her poles and relating this to a paddle. Well, that's like I was telling you the thing that Larry Kane put on my paddle board that yeah, kind of yeah, measures sensor. all those metrics. Right. Yeah. So, but on this, I don't know if it could, remember, it could measure this, but when you're returning your paddle, if you throw your weight forward, the board speeds up between strokes. Hmm. So, how what are you? Every little instantaneous movement of your mass should be deliberate in the direction you want your board to go. Don't waste anything. Mm-hmm. Don't waste one little angle off center, off forward. Mm-hmm. Don't let any of that built-up energy from your power stroke be wasted. Lock, throw it all forward mm-hmm. and let the board throw forward with you. Mm-hmm. So that was a big thing, and uh, I still teach people that, even absolute beginners. I teach them yeah. to make their return the quickest part of their stroke yeah. and throw their weight forward and and keep weight in line. Don't don't get it swinging around side to side. And mm-hmm. a lot of great stuff. So um, who else? Who else have you 
who else made a lasting impression on you that you yeah, came the, into contact with? The first that? event we did to launch Coco Brown for Kona Brewery was, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I think, in 010. And they, uh, it may have been 11, 011, but they had all the ma- a lot of major media people in men's health and all a bunch of, you know, there for the lodge. Magazines and stuff, yeah. Yeah, and well, two or three days of luau's, and I would teach them how to paddleboard, and we have little races. and. Mm-hmm. And they also brought in another ambassador, which was Candace Appleby, mm-hmm. another top woman in the sport and pioneer of the sport. Mm-hmm. And her uh, uh, partner in um, paddling, what, what's the name of the uh, Anthony. Committee? Anthony? Well, Anthony Vela, but it's uh, precision paddling. Perform- performance Pre- paddling. Performance paddling? Precision yeah. paddling? Yeah. So, uh, anyway. Wait, which one is it? <laughs> I think it's precision battling. It's precision battling. Slipping too. my mind right now, yeah. but uh, it's something I believe still going on today. But that was came real popular, uh, you know, camps for kids and stuff. Yeah. And um, her and Anthony Vela partnered in that, and she was also an ambassador for Kona Brewery. Mm-hmm. So I'd known her before. I'd met her at Battle of Paddles and such, and Anthony as acquaintances. But I uh, really got to know them at this event, and. Um, uh, you know, they did uh, her first precision paddling uh, clinic there for a lot of the locals and and uh, Florida riders that came to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Uh, and it was their first one ever that they did at my lodge. Mm. And uh, so pretty historical event. And um, yeah, a lot of others have been, while I, I'm not in that lodge anymore, uh, and I've moved on from that location. Yeah. But the five years I was there really made a made an made a indelible mark in the East Coast paddleboard history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Let me ask you. Uh, we can we can edit this out if if there's no real answer to it. But let me ask you: Are there any other stand-up paddlers that uh, impressed you with either their training regimen or just the way they approach their training or just the level of professionalism that they brought to their career. You mentioned Annabelle Anderson as one who uh, just, by the way, said some things that just stuck with you and, and really changed the way you, you know, thought about some things that, you know, people do. Yeah. And uh, are there any other people that you cross paths with through that? That well, Little things like uh, I met Danny Ching at one of the, Exposed a long time ago and became mm-hmm. friends and and uh, picked up a few things from him and uh, Zane Schweitzer of became a good friend you know when he was a kid now he's not he's a man mm-hmm. and him and a lot of the other guys I I watched grow up and mm-hmm. Kai Lenny you know and Connor and we're friends with yeah. good great people from great families yeah. and um, you know like uh, every time I surf with Zane I learn something new. You know, or hear him instructing someone else. Remember, we were out surfing, and Izzy Gomez was with us, who became world champion several years in a row. And mm-hmm. I overheard him giving her a few pointers that I've used ever since. You know, oh, yeah, like what? <laughs> so, I like pumping that front knee into a wave. You know, getting the board porpoising forward, uh-huh. and uh, doing short pumping strokes, launching your board into the wave. And uh, so, I've I've done that, and I've also taught that ever since. Little things. Last time I helped him with a uh, do a clinic for a stand up for the cure event in Miami. Yeah, I helped him teach the clinics we'd split up. But uh, 
you know, just with that shoulder tilting into the shoulder, so important. It helps you really get that that rotate that the, the stretch to catch. You mean dropping, dropping? Yeah, your drop that shoulder, shoulder yeah. allows you to get even more of a catch out front, mm-hmm. another few inches of, yeah, of critical extension. inches yeah. of extension, so you can get that critical leverage. Mm-hmm. And uh, but we turn on a twelve six. How he's started just not moving his front foot, but just taking one foot back as far as you can, doing the buoy turn, and then not moving the front foot. Correct, yeah. Huh. So one foot back, sink the tail as much as you can, buoy turn, and then right back up and go. So not doing little things any, like that. Any kind of step or shuffle, just yeah, just one step up and one step back. Yeah, yeah, yep, and uh, one step back, one step up. A lot of little things. Um, you just pick up as you go. You never stop learning, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, So bring it back to your shop. How long has your shop been open here where you've been? Because you've been selling paddle boards for a while. But I, I well, I've been selling them from the beginning, but I've always been a service first and then we'll order you a board kind of business. Because mm-hmm. when I started in paddle boarding, I was pretty much restarting my life, you know, from zero, mm-hmm. zero savings, zero money, zero anything, you know. And, yeah. Um, and so I just built up... Uh, the business over time, mm-hmm. as I made money, I could buy more supplies and et cetera. I didn't have any family backing. I had, you know, no investors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love what I was doing, and I was making money at it, so I wanted to keep growing it. Mm-hmm. So this shop, this 1,500-square-foot, 18-foot ceiling shop, I've only had for a year and a half. Okay. Uh, before that, you know, I came up from Miami in 09. I got that lodge. Worked out a lodge for five years, and then uh, I had a, I had a, you know met my wife, and uh, I knew I was getting married, and the lodge wasn't really the right place for us to live mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. So <clears throat> left there, and in transition, uh, I worked out of a, a jet ski spot on the causeway for about a year, and that just wasn't a good vibe for us at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm amazed at the difference between the crowd. 90% of the people coming to jet ski were smokers. Yeah. 90% of them would flick their buds all over the property. I just, oh, wow. And uh, just really a uh, different crowd than what I was used to and mm-hmm. different vibe and got no carryover business from them. And it was actually a negative atmosphere uh, for yeah. my paddlers yeah, to come paddling. Like so probably more in conflict with yeah exactly what you're doing totally in conflict Harvey. with our lifestyle business and yeah. vibe so uh we found this air this warehouse uh, a little off the path but still on Merritt island mm-hmm. and i was helping another brand get their start and they needed a warehouse so i found this 18 foot square square foot warehouse 18 foot ceiling warehouse came in here for them uh and then, um, and you were just going to distribute their yeah. We were just going to distribute their product, and I was going to sell them and, and that uh-huh. kind of thing. And and uh, wound up realizing, man, we really got to get out of this jet ski place. It's horrible. Yeah. And uh, my wife and I ended up moving just down the street from where the the uh, new warehouse was, yeah. with a little private launch area, and uh, the owners of the property saying, "Yeah, you can use this launch, please." You know. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, me and my buddy were in here, and he, and he was like, you know what? You could run your business out of here. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. So uh, we did it. Uh, I talked to the uh, the brand that had gotten the warehouse, and 
they agreed, yeah, we'll share it with you. You do half, we'll do half. And we did that for a while. And they ended up pulling out. Um, and uh, I took over the whole warehouse. And, yeah. you know, it's worked out as a great place to have my shop, my, uh, you know, family-owned uh, and operated uh, business. And, mm-hmm. you know, I got, I've built up an incredible inventory of boards. I think I have 75 paddle boards in here now, all paid for. And... Um, Great selection. What I think is the best brand out there right now, Riviera. I pretty much dropped every other brand. And the full line of Riviera boards I carry, they fill in every niche. They got the best construction, best price, best supply for dealers. Mm-hmm. You know, American-owned company and run by a family, mm-hmm. even though they're one of the biggest paddleboard companies. So mm-hmm. well-positioned right now in my life. Uh, I've, I've sold probably five times more boards than ever you know this year yeah. well over several hundred boards mm-hmm. uh and i'm just getting started having a real shop and showroom so yeah. uh stoked about that i'm the regional dealer for for riviera and the rep for them is a guy i trained in paddleboarding so uh, so you guys are tight that happened later so yeah great relationship there yeah. and a uh, great guy and um Still doing uh, tours and lessons and free demos and mm-hmm. down the street from our shop. Yeah. Even if you come and pay for a $25 rental, I still give you a thorough clinic. I mean, I mm-hmm. want everybody to have a good experience mm-hmm. and know how, what they're doing uh, yeah. when they're out there paddling. Yeah. So, uh, and I just, you know, I've been my three year anniversary to my beautiful, amazing wife uh, is coming up in November. And yeah. we're. Three-month-old baby, my first baby at 52. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. That, yeah, new adventure. Yeah. New well, motivation. You made sure you got all your living yeah. in before she arrived in the world. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> but, uh, but let me tell you, I'm enjoying having a having a family more than anything else I've ever isn't enjoyed. Isn't that the most Yeah, the it's most better than anything. Yeah. yeah. I've always wanted that, but it just hasn't happened, you know, yeah. with it through a... I'll tell you what, when circumstances my, or yeah, mistakes yeah, or whatever, or you know, one reason or another. Yeah. yeah. When my son was born, it was easily easy to say that was the peak experience in my life. You know, I'm sure you could probably say the same. Yeah. She looked into my eye five minutes after birth, you know, that brought the baby into the incubator, washed her, washed her, weighed her, yeah. and then put her in the incubator. I put my hand on her head and she opened her eyes and locked into my eyes and just stared into my eyes for what seemed like forever. Yeah. I was just bawling. <laughs> I, was, I was like, this is... And the cool thing is, I was adopted at birth. I, my first blood relative I've ever looked at in the eyes was my baby. And a little part of me, first part of me I've ever seen. Yeah. You know, wow. and uh, first blood I've ever seen. So and we're just so oh, thankful wow. and blessed. She's three months old and perfect health and super smart. Beautiful kid. Yeah, I mean, you can already tell, like, yeah. those signs of, like, <clears throat> just those signs of intelligence in infants, you know, where yeah. they, they hold your gaze, you know, they track with their eyes, they're curious, responsive, you know. Smiling, laughing. expressive, yeah. She's even... Repeated a few sounds back. I say, I say hi. I've got it on video. Sure, going yeah. hi. Yeah. Like I'm sure she don't know what she's yeah. saying, but yeah. she is imitating me. Yeah. Like Mimicking. she actually did that at two months, at yeah. eight weeks. Yeah. And I got it on video. Pretty, pretty cool. But uh, well. 
Yeah, my wife's Filipino, and then uh, so she's just like a perfect mix between yeah. us, and a lot of care, for dark her. green eyes, and yeah. I don't know. I want to see what kind of color hair color she's got. It looks auburn right now, which would be pretty amazing, mm-hmm. but uh, that could change over time. But just super healthy. I can't, you know, can't be any more thankful, because I know that doesn't always happen. So, no, well. Enjoy the good times when you have them, and and uh, you know be prepared for the ups and downs always. But you know, I think one thing that I think you could that definitely emerges to the front in hearing you tell your story is that you've developed wisdom along the way, and uh, you know, with wisdom often comes resilience, and and uh, you've shown yourself to be a a resilient person someone who can adapt to change uh yeah. when faced with the necessity for it mm-hmm. and uh you know and someone who can uh you know main you know play the long game rather than letting themselves get kind of discouraged by the circumstances in front of them and uh, i think those are all admirable qualities well i appreciate that uh, it's easy to dwell on your mistakes in life and i've made more than my share. Oh, oh, all of us do, yeah. Big ones. But, uh, you know, I've never had bad intentions, really. It's always, you do the best that you can at the time, and you think you're doing the right thing, and a lot of times you're not. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you just, you know, that's life, though. It's like, you know, we're, there was only one Jesus lived a perfect life, and, and uh, none of us are that, you know, so... Yeah, I, I mean, I got to say my faith and uh, God being faithful to me even when I uh, doubted, uh, I got to I gotta say that, mm-hmm. testify about that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, just uh, getting away from labels and just, just uh, with a true heart seeking help and accepting it, mm-hmm. you know, from, from God and from friends. And, uh, and at the same time, always being ready to help others if you can and uh try to be true and honest and mm-hmm. you know have integrity and and uh genuine you can be genuinely wrong but at least be genuine <laughs> uh you know so that's where we are and uh i'm excited for every day and what the new adventure will bring and yeah got high goals and praying big and asking big and Working hard and yeah. fighting hard, you know, competing hard. That's most people out there, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's easy to quit. It's easy not to. Yeah. Too easy. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, I really appreciate you taking, it's been a couple hours now, sitting down and, and uh, telling your stories, and and uh, uh, it's just it's been a lot of fun. So thank you, Gerard. Yeah, my pleasure, and uh, thanks for uh, giving me a uh, chance to tell my stories and not just dwell on the mistakes you made in life, but also don't forget the amazing things life have brought you and, and instances and experiences and and uh, that maturity helping you to self-coach to hey, dwell on the positive, mm-hmm. dwell on your successes. Mm-hmm. Dwell on on the uh, 
amazing things uh, you know each of us are able to do mm-hmm. in our lives, which is usually uh, set between mistakes, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. It's it's uh, we're human, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, all right, brother. Thanks again. All right, bro.